All right, good morning, Story Fam. Hope you all are doing good. Merry Christmas, by the way. Merry Christmas. Also want to say hello and Merry Christmas to our family at Timber Grove or over at 8200 Washington Avenue. We love y'all. Somebody go give Pastor Kale a big hug in the room right now. Just give him a, a Christmas hug as he prepares to be a pastor and a father of two little kids and all that. Just give him a little extra love today because uh, we all love Pastor Kale. All, also, everybody joining us online, uh, welcome to the story. Wherever you are in the world, if you're tuning in online right now, you're part of our community and we're grateful for you. All right, so it's the big week, Christmas week. You're here this morning, the last Sunday before Christmas, in spite of the fact that the World Cup final is on right now. Anybody have a score? Let me guess. Zero, zero, probably? <laughs> Halftime? 2-0, who's winning? What? Wow, there goes my prediction. All right, I had France, but okay. Looks like Argentina's gonna pull it off. Okay, all right. So uh, you, you made the better choice, is what I'm trying to say today. Um, you, uh, you're here, we're here together. There's nothing better than this. I know that sometimes going to church can feel like a rut or a routine that you get stuck in as a religious person. I encourage you to just reject every notion of that today. And let's go at the Christmas story today with some fresh eyes and with some open hearts to see what exactly happened on Christmas that we're still celebrating 2,000 years later. And what does it mean and matter to us today? All right, so that's what we're here to, to talk about. We are in part three of this 22-part uh, message series called A Physician and the Facts. This is um, a 22-week exploration of the Gospel of Luke. So um, Luke stands out for reasons I've talked about the last couple of weeks as uh, the only non-Jewish author of Scripture. He has a very specific approach to Scripture that is, uh, that is unique and I think speaks right to the heart of a church that's here for skeptics, like the Story Church is. And so I'm excited about this. Just a real quick heads up, you've got a daily reading guide to keep us all on the same page as we read every word of the Gospel of Luke together um, from now until the week after Easter in 2023. So it's gonna be a great journey. Let's put all of ourselves into this and read through the Gospel of Luke together so that, so that we're all of one mind when we talk about this in our groups and in, on Sunday mornings. That reading guide is on the back of your study guides this morning. If you don't have that already somewhere, you can easily catch up. We're on week three, but we're still in like Luke chapter one or two this week. So you can catch up real easily and get on the same page with us this week. All right. So those study guides will be helpful to you as we go through today's message. This is part three of volume one. So we're splitting up the 22 weeks into five volumes or themes you'll find throughout Luke's gospel Volume one is um, basically a direct quote from the woman we're going to study today. It's the, the title of it is, How Can This Be? Or How Can It Be? And this is a direct quote, more or less, from Mary. Other people said it too, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, the most important woman in the Bible, and the, probably, I, don't, I couldn't think of another competitor, like the most famous woman in world history. Like, is any woman more widely known across cultures and times than the Virgin Mary is known. So we're gonna talk about Mary today and hopefully get better acquainted with her. I've got three objectives with today's message on Mary. This is like, first of all, I geek out on the Mary stuff every year. It breaks my heart that Protestants kind of left Mary behind when we left the Catholics behind. <laughs> We've been trying to prove we're not Catholic ever since by not talking about Mary to our own detriment, y'all. So I've got three objectives with this message today. First, I want us all to leave here or to leave Timber Grove or to finish this message online better acquainted with Mary because 
To become better acquainted with Mary is, in a real way, to become better acquainted with Jesus, which is what we're all about here. It's our stated mission. So we must know the woman who not only gave birth to Jesus, but the woman who raised him and poured her life into his before he poured his out for her. Just this amazing um, relationship that those two had and have. So we're going to get to know Mary. That's job one. Secondly, we're going to try and unpack and explain the virgin birth. One of the, I think, most often misunderstood and misconstrued central teachings of Christianity. It's like in the Apostles' Creed, it's in the top, like whatever list of things Christians believe, the virgin birth, and yet it's something so many people struggle with for different reasons. You know, you've got sort of semi-atheist Christians that just don't believe in they struggle to believe in miracles, and so the virgin birth is sort of borderline for them. And then we've got people who have felt like the church has been heavy-handed with virgin birth stuff as a way of kind of, as far as it's perceived anyway, shaming women and girls in a way like the, the what was the purity culture stuff, like from a couple of generations ago in the church, especially in the Bible Belt. A lot of people felt like exalting the Virgin Mary was a way of, of, of trying to keep girls and women virgins or something, some kind of subversive thing like that. And I want to really un unpack and explain the meaning of the virgin birth. And then we're going to wrap up by talking about preparing our hearts for Christmas. We're six days out now, seven days, I guess. Next Sunday is Christmas Day. And I want us all to stay awake and open to the surprises of God this week as we celebrate Christmas, because I think that's really the only way to properly celebrate Christmas for reasons we're going to talk about today. So you can open your Bibles or you can um, use the study guide for the scriptures or follow along on the screens. You know, I always love it when people use their own Bibles, but whatever works for you, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 is where we will begin. Luke 1, verse 26 says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. I'm just going to hit pause on that for just a second. We'll get back to it in just a minute. But I want to talk about Nazareth real quick so you know a lot about somebody when you know where they're from and the kind of place they were raised in. So where did Mary grow up? She grew up in Nazareth. What do we know about Nazareth? Not a lot. Before Mary and Jesus came on the scene, Nazareth was never mentioned in any historical records, like Roman records or maps that the Greeks or Romans made, or it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament, y'all. You ever read the Old Testament and seen how many places you've never heard of are mentioned in the Old Testament? Like 900 villages and towns and cities are mentioned in the Old Testament. Not once is Nazareth mentioned. Isn't that interesting? So Nazareth sits right in the middle of it all. It's not like way off the beaten path. It's 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee and like 68 miles north of Jerusalem. It's right there in red on this map, and yet it is never mentioned. It's either because it was insignificant, unimportant. Some archaeologists think it's because it was hidden at the top of a mountain, kind of like in the bowl of a volcanic-shaped mountain. It wasn't a volcano, but it was sort of hidden inside a mountain in a way. But it's probably mostly because it was so tiny. Nazareth... The population of Nazareth in Mary's day was, uh, archaeologists say, between 250 people and 400 people. And I don't know if you've ever lived in a small town. I have. Somebody from Redlick, Texas can understand what it was like a little bit for Mary to grow up in an agricultural tiny village. 
Red Lick, where I grew up, had a population when I was born of around 254 people, give or take. And I was related to most of them. And um, it's a special experience. It's a unique experience to grow up in a town where everybody knows everybody. Nothing is really secret or private. Reputation is really everything. And, and uh, you know, mostly it's one big happy family. Now Red Lick has exploded in growth since Texarkana's urban sprawl has impinged upon our, you know, our rural bliss. Now it's like 450 people or something. It's huge now. But Nazareth in Mary's day, 250 to 400 people max. And I don't know if you've ever known small town people or small town girls. They're a special breed in many instances. They, they aren't always like we portray Mary to be. How do you see Mary in most of the art? She's got like porcelain skin. There's not a lot of that, all right, in small agricultural rural towns. The young women especially get out in the elements. They get their hands dirty, especially in the olden days. They'd have leathery skin for being outdoors all the time. And Mary would have been tough and edgy and gritty, that's why we see this warrior spirit come out in her later in life as she, as she fights for her son, as she shows up to his execution and stands mere feet away from where he died, as she showed up for the birth of the church and, and carried on his name after he, after he was dead and resurrected. Like Mary was a, a fighter. And, and we're going to learn at Christmas Eve how she really went it alone for a, for a brief point in time that really showed us who she was in her heart. So Mary was from a small town, Nazareth, and that really equipped her to survive um, what life was about, what God in her life was about to throw in her direction. Let's keep reading um, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. So again, six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. That's King David in the Old Testament, of course. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, before we dig too deep into the virgin birth stuff, let's talk about what the other implication of that qualifier, virgin, meant and in terms of describing Mary. So it wasn't just about her relationship status or her sexual history. Virgin also... Um, alluded to Mary's age in a way. So all scholars of the New Testament agree that this meant Mary was very young. A woman, biologically speaking, but only recently so, if that makes sense. Still, by our standards today, Mary would have been considered a child. Her age was probably 14 or 15 years, of, uh, years old when she was visited by this angel. So not a sort of, I, I see the images of Mary with the baby, Jesus, and she looks like a, like a college graduate, like a working mother, like with a career or something. It's like she's got it all together and she could like fit in at the story. It's like she's got all this normalcy in, in, in her countenance and in, in how she looks in most of the art that I see. But, but rarely do I see an image of Mary that looks like she's 14 or 15 years old when she's with child. That should add a layer of, 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 let's say, intensity or meaning to our Christmas celebrations each year. It's one of the ways I am just, I'm taken with Mary. I'm just, I'm just amazed by her story. I'm amazed by God, really, that God, out of all the world, full of all these people, facing his singular moment and opportunity to save the whole world from going to hell or from its sin and all of that, he chose a 14 or 15-year-old girl to be his agent, the carrier of the promise, the deliverer of the deliverer. 
the one who raised his son. I'll be honest, as the father of a 15-year-old daughter who's not here right now, she is away at the winter retreat for our student ministries, as are most of the 14 and 15-year-old girls who call the story home, so I'm going to talk about them, all right? So I don't mean this as an insult, but if I face that choice to pick one person to be responsible and selfless and aware... I don't think my search for that candidate would begin at the local, you know, middle school or high school in town. I don't think it would begin with 14 or 15-year-olds, girls, although I will say the only demographic I trust less than 14 or 15-year-old girls is 14 or 15-year-old boys. That's right. I want to be fair and even-handed here. It's not a knock. It's just their brains aren't fully developed yet, and they don't quite have their reasoning and rational skills, you know, finely tuned yet. And so you can't trust them with a great deal of responsibility. At least that's how we look at it today. But here's God trusting a 14 or 15-year-old girl with the heaviest burden anyone's ever carried, I would imagine, with the most significant responsibility and role the world's ever known before or since. Interesting, interesting I just picture Mary the night she was approached by the angel, like sitting at home alone doing what teenage girls do when they're like chilling at home. You know, it's like, what do they do? It's like, look in the mirror, like, I just like pop a zit or like make a face in the mirror. I see my daughter smiling a lot in the mirror. It's, I don't know why. Maybe Mary Snapchatted with whatever friends she had, on iPhone 4, BC, whatever she had in her, like whatever she was doing there. It's like maybe, maybe Mary was like um, writing in her journal, like Mary loves Joseph. That's what girls do, Mary Hart's Joseph. Joseph and Mary Carpenter, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Carpenter, Mr. and Mrs. Mary and Joseph Carpenter, Mrs. Mary Carpenter, Mary Carpenter, Mary Carpenter. Like this practicing her future autograph or signature, you know. It's like I've seen girls do that. I've seen my daughter do that. And maybe that's how God found Mary. Why wouldn't he have? She was a typical 14, 15-year-old girl with all kinds of hopes and dreams about a normal life. With this boy, she was engaged to marry, having kids in this small town and raising them like she had been raised. You can imagine the kind of plans she had made with Joseph. And here comes God, interrupting her Hanukkah season, <laughs> interrupting Mary's normal life, disrupting her plans and visions and hopes for the future, disrupting her own normal childhood or girlhood and, and laying before her this unthinkable burden and opportunity to be a part of his great salvation story, okay? So the fact that she's so young and, and still God uses her, I think is remarkable. Now let's get into the other more, I would say, controversial aspect. And that is the fact that the Bible is clear that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. When she conceived and gave birth to Jesus, she was a virgin. This is so important for us to make clear because in the absence of good teaching about the virgin birth, people are prone to uh, fall prey to bad teaching <laughs> about the importance and meaning of the virgin birth. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about why the virgin birth actually um, matters. Uh, before we get too deep into that, let's finish reading this passage. Verse uh, 28 of chapter 1. 
It says, uh, the angel went to Mary and uh, said to her, greetings, you, are high, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid. Mary, you found favor with God, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So this is not a, a human kingdom. This is a heavenly kingdom that will be born in her son that is to come. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And here's Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Mary goes from saying, how will this be, to saying, I'm the Lord's servant. It's an amazing turn of events. Maybe there's something about the impulsivity of youth that God saw in Mary. He saw that maybe only someone who wasn't worn down by life, like a lot of us grown adults are, would say yes to such a wild proposition to give birth to the hope of the world as a virgin. Think of all that was at stake for Mary, the reputational aspect in a small town to become pregnant, unmarried, a teenager, a religious girl from a devout family. All of the expectations for Mary's life were about to be thrown out the window because Mary said yes to God. What does it mean then that she said yes to God as a virgin? Let's talk real quick about what it doesn't mean. So. And this is important because a lot of people have gotten mixed signals as if the virgin birth means that, you know, uh, God likes uh, and appreciates and honors people who don't have a past, people who have a spotless record, people who've behaved properly. You know, that, that a virgin is somehow holier than a non-virgin. This message has come through to generations of young girls, especially, but also young boys, in ways that make it sound like what the church is saying and what the Bible means when it lifts up Mary's virginity is, well, it's because she hadn't had sex. And sex is bad, and people that have sex are bad, and so that's why God honored Mary. It was her good behavior. Y'all, that ain't it. And it's important that we know that's not it so we can get to what it is, all right? So that understanding of sex and virginity is, it's well-intentioned because sex is such a dangerous and powerful thing. We've got to be sure and teach our kids to be careful with their bodies. I understand it, but it gave rise in the fourth and fifth centuries to these unbiblical teachings about Mary that had implications for Christians. Teachings like um, the Immaculate Conception, which I know that you've heard that phrase before. Most Protestant Christians think the Immaculate Conception means Jesus's conception. 
The teaching or the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, Catholics will tell you, it's actually about Mary's conception. Because if Mary was pure as a virgin, then she must have come from pure circumstances too. And so Mary was without sin. And so her conception was miraculous. And it's like we have to keep this sort of sexless purity in Mary's lineage so that she can give birth to this pure person, Jesus. That's not in the Bible. Nowhere to be found in the Bible, but it took root in the church because that was the only logical conclusion they could draw because they were making the virgin birth about Mary's sexual history instead of what it was really about, okay? So I'm gonna get to it in a second, I promise. The other thing that it gave rise to this other teaching was the, um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. This idea that Mary wasn't just a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, she stayed a virgin forever. And this was taught from like the fourth or fifth century all the way through like five years ago. I'm not joking. The perpetual virginity of, of, of Mary was something that uh, Catholics and some Protestants the world over bought into because, again, they made God using Mary as a virgin uh, to do this great, wonderful thing about, you know, him honoring her lack of sexual past. That's not quite it. But that is, that is why, if you ever pay attention to the art, a lot of the Renaissance-era art that you'll see of Mary and Joseph, Mary is a young girl, and Joseph is a really old man. Have you ever noticed? It's kind of weird that they would be portrayed that way. The only reason they're portrayed that way is because there was a myth that did develop within church teaching that said Joseph had the other kids that are mentioned in the Bible, the other kids that were siblings of Jesus. Joseph had them with his first wife, grew old and she died, and then he sort of took Mary in, not as a wife, but as sort of an orphan wife to take care of her because her sexual purity was that important, not just before Jesus, but forever. It's wild what we'll do when we don't remember the original truth of the simple biblical message of something like the virgin birth. Y'all, the virgin birth had much less to do with Mary's good behavior and much more to do with these three things I'm gonna talk about now, all right? So first, the first good reason we have for teaching and celebrating the virgin birth of Christ is because it signified the end of sin's curse. The virgin birth of Jesus, and the reason Mary's virginity mattered to this story is because it meant the curse of original sin was broken or it was about to be, through Christ. Now, original sin is another one of those doctrines that is deeply biblical. It's not like these other ones that sort of popped up in over time. Original sin is deeply biblical. It's the idea that through one man's sin, Adam, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, sin entered the human picture in a way that infected us from within so that we were born into this innate sinfulness that we could not escape. And I know that's not a very hopeful vision for humanity, but I challenge you to find a better explanation for the evil that we see in the world today than the biblical doctrine of original sin. And when God comes to Mary, a virgin, and says, you will conceive and bear a son, one whose kingdom will never end, one who, the implication here is that this will be our deliverer. He's saying that I'm coming to deal with the problem of sin. I am breaking the curse. I am subverting sin's oppressive system that has held my people captive, and it's time to let my people go. And I'm doing that 
by my own power through the Virgin Mary to show the whole world that something different, something new, something beautiful and good has come, the end of sin's affliction. Now, uh, this doctrine, I think, is beautifully um, uh, embodied or, or demonstrated in this, my favorite image from the Christmas season. It's the image of Mary consoling Eve. This is, I post it every year on my social media feeds. I use it in sermons every other year or so because it is so profound. We have Eve on the left um, holding the forbidden fruit in one hand, and her other hand is sitting on Mary's womb with Jesus inside. Eve's face looks downcast, and she looks dejected and, and ashamed. The serpent from the Garden of Eden is wrapped around her leg. And then on the other side, you have Mary, who has a totally different look or countenance on her face. She's not downcast or afraid. She is reassuring and calm and collected. And she has one hand with Eve's on her womb, and her other hand is comforting Eve on the side of her face. And my favorite little detail of this image is easily overlooked because it's at the very bottom of the image where Mary's left foot sits atop the dead serpent's head which is upside down, tongue out, dead, as dead as any serpent has ever been. Because the image here is meant to demonstrate the deeper meaning of Christmas, which was born in the Virgin Mary herself, that God came to deal with our sin and once and for all, to, to destroy it and put it in the grave. It doesn't mean we still don't struggle with sin and misbehavior and all this stuff. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with darkness and all that. It just means that the curse itself, in that it can condemn us and have power over us, that's over for those who are in Christ because God came and subverted it. It was a surprise attack against evil and darkness and sin itself. That's what Christmas is, is a surprise attack. And Mary willingly enlisted herself in that attack by saying, I am the Lord's servant, so be it, all right? So this, I hope, stands in stark contrast to the idea that Mary was just chosen because she was a good girl who lived a pure you know, life or whatever. That's important, and that's good. Be good girls, be good boys, do that. But don't do it to gain God's approval. Through Mary's boy, you've already been approved by God, not through your own righteousness, but through his Romans 5 says, one man's sin subjected all of humanity to sin everywhere, every place, every person, but one man's righteous act cancels the power of sin. Go home and read Romans 5 and study it this week as part of your, as part of your Christmas preparation and be blown away as I was this week. That's really what Christmas is. Y'all sang it earlier when we sang, born that we no more may die. Did you hear it? That's what it means for Jesus to come through the Virgin Mary by the power of God, to save us from the sinful heritage of Adam. Second, the second reason Mary's virginity matters and, and what it means is that God makes all things possible. God makes all things possible. The, the, the idea that God would achieve this one thing, the, the birth of a child through the one person who shouldn't be able to birth a child, giving birth through a virgin, when there are all these other women he could have chosen, is just another reminder that our God loves doing unlikely things through unlikely people. 
God is bored with the ordinary. He seems to, to crave every opportunity to surprise the world by acting through surprising people. He gives birth through virgins. He plants churches with former atheists and porn addicts. He, he sets the world on fire with the Apostle Paul, who used to kill Christians for a living. This is just what he does. And if you think the only women he ever uses are those who are chaste. I encourage you to do your research on the family tree of Jesus and discover that Mary is the exception, not the rule. Because in Jesus' family tree, as articulated in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, we find other women who lived much different lives, and yet God still saw something good and righteous and possible in them and called them into his service. And they answered faithfully, and for that reason, we still remember their names, women like Rahab, the prostitute, and Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute but was not, and Ruth, the foreign Moabite uh, 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 widow, and Bathsheba, the one who David mistreated and abused and, and, uh, and used, whose husband he killed, like Bathsheba is part of the story, and so is Mary. So it's not about God only using the well-behaved ones. It's about God using all of us to do the most unexpected things to, to, to mount a surprise attack against the, the darkness of this world. Third, the third reason why I think the virgin birth matters and what it means to us today is that God is now with us. This seems to be very important to the first Christians. They're always repeating it, Emmanuel. Christmas means Emmanuel. Christmas means Emmanuel. Of course it does. We sing it every year. It's no news to us anymore. But it should shock us and send a shiver down our spine every time we think of it. The idea that God is now with us. And he's with you. Right now in church, of course, but he's just as much with you on the way home from church. And he's with you while you're in your home. He's with you if you have a happy home or an unhappy one. He's with you on the job, in the office. He's with you in the car. He's with us in the world, at the store, on the street, stuck in traffic with our crazy families this weekend as we celebrate Christmas. He's going to be with us then because something new has broken loose in Mary's baby through him. And that is that God is no longer confined to the four walls of a temple or to the safe confines of religion. God has broken loose. He's been unleashed and poured out onto the whole world, and he is always around us, with us, among us, and even for believers within us, as we have become the temples of his Holy Spirit. God is with us, Emmanuel. This is a breakthrough. So, if all of these things are true, that God used Mary to cancel out sin, to do something as extraordinary as trampling the serpent of death and darkness through her baby boy, and if it's true that God used, Mary, used a person like Mary to do the impossible, and if it's true that God still does that today, and if it's true what we've said today that, that, that the, the virgin birth means God with us. If this is still true today, then what does it mean for you and your Christmas celebration this year? Honest question. What does it mean for us? 
Can we continue to celebrate Christmas in the same rote, ritualistic, traditional ways? There's nothing wrong with those ways, but there's nothing surprising about them either. And if Christmas at its core and its essence is a surprise attack against darkness, how are we going to be a part of that this Christmas? And how will we stay open in our hearts and our reflections to God's visiting us and prompting us and asking us or inviting us into his ongoing attack against darkness and sin? Because the war rages on around us, and we can ignore it or we can fight it, but to ignore it is to lose it. And he invites us still to be a part of it. Now, if you feel unqualified to do God's work, and that's really the only qualification that you need, amazingly, God loves using underqualified and unqualified people, people who say, how can this be? I need a little bit of an explanation. Why me and why not so-and-so? If that's where your heart's at, it's in the perfect place today. And I'm going to challenge you to stay open to that possibility that this Christmas, this week, God might prompt you with an opportunity to disrupt your normal life, to interrupt your traditional celebration of Christmas, to surprise maybe yourself, but definitely those around you, your friends, family, and loved ones as you celebrate Christmas by allowing God to break into your plans and ruin the, the way it should be because that's what he does. But in so doing, he brings about something far better, far greater. Just yesterday, I was sitting at a restaurant for breakfast with a friend of mine, and we had this opportunity. As we sat there and talked for like two hours over breakfast, he goes to church here. He's not a pastor. He's an oil and gas. He's just kind of a regular guy, but he loves the Lord. And we were talking about the Lord the whole time. And this waiter who kept bringing us gallons and gallons of coffee because we just wouldn't leave and let somebody else come and start their breakfast. Like I'm, I've waited tables. I know what that's like. But he was so patient with us and so good. And he was listening to our conversation about Jesus as he served our table. And it became clear to me that's why he kept coming back to our table with all those gallons of coffee. He wanted more. And at the end of it, I was right. He said, I wish I could have just sat here with you guys and listened to your conversation. It sounds fascinating. And we asked him to tell us a little bit about himself. And he told us his name. He said his wife left him in 2019. They had six kids together. And now he's a single father, raising these kids on his own. In fact, he said today, which was yesterday, I'm about to become a grandfather. My oldest is about to deliver her first child. And I was like, what are you doing here waiting tables? But then I caught myself like, he has to. You know, and he told us about losing his house in 2020, and he started to cry as he told us about what it was like to lose his home during 2020, and let us not forget how deep the suffering was for many people during the response to the pandemic and everything. And then my friend, like, beat me to the punch. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to do this. But my friend, who's an oil and gas, said, can we just pray for you right now in the middle of a busy restaurant, in the middle of, like, the Galleria area? And he looked around and he just kind of knelt down real low between the table that we were at and the table next to ours. And so nobody, in, like his manager or whatever, wouldn't see him. <laughs> he wouldn't get in trouble. And <clears throat> we laid hands on him and prayed for him there. And my friend, after that, paid the bill because I always let him pay the bill because he's in oil and gas. And <laughs> he paid the bill and left a really generous tip. 
And we walked out, and we were talking in the parking lot, and five minutes later, that man, who's in his 50s, uh, Mexican descent, like beautiful, sincere, single father, comes running out of the restaurant, tears running down his face. He had seen the receipt with the tip on it, and he gives my friend just the biggest hug and says, thank you, thank you, thank you. And through his tears, he's like, Merry Christmas, thank you so much. You have no idea what this means. Of course, we immediately got him signed up for our men's Bible study, and I hope to see him at church one of these days. But my friend, the first thing my friend said through his tears, because he was crying by that time and I was crying, it was like one of those emotional moments, three dudes, you know, just like crying in the parking lot. <clears throat> he said, Eric, that would not have happened if we'd been there talking about the Astros. Wouldn't have happened if we were there talking about the weather. We were sitting there talking about Jesus, and that's why it happened. We were prepared to allow God to break through to allow God to bring a surprise, to allow, allow God to bring Christmas to that restaurant in that moment. And so I want to challenge you to be ready this week to surprise yourself and your family by the way you celebrate Christmas before you crack open those presents and everybody's excited about what Santa brings. Stop for a minute. Nobody touch a present. We're going to stop and give thanks for the birth of Jesus first. Like, surprise your kids. It might be an unpleasant surprise, but you know, so was Mary's. What Mary shows us is this, is this universal truth in Scripture saying yes to God rarely makes your life easier. It rarely makes your life better by the world standards, but always makes your life matter. Makes your life matter to the kingdom of God and to the people he calls you to serve. So be the Christmas promise to the people in the world around you this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, Mar for Mary. We pray that you would give us a portion of her courage to be willing when faced with the possibility of having our plans and neat Christmas celebrations disrupted or interrupted. Lord, help us to say yes. We are the Lord's servants. So be it. Father, we thank you for Christmas and all that it means today. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.